Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. It was a case of whiplash. On Tuesday morning, President-elect Donald Trump was supposed to come here to The New York Times for a major, wide-ranging, on-the-record conversation with editors and reporters. His first with any newspaper since the election. It was a really big deal. Then, via Twitter, he canceled. He said that we had changed the rules of the interview. We hadn't. Then, a few hours later, Trump wanted to talk. So there we are, in this grand room with photographs of world leaders covering the walls, with a spread of salmon and steak on the buffet, Secret Service agents waiting outside the door, and Donald Trump, the president-elect, sitting with us at a mammoth wooden table fielding our questions. What exactly happened in that room? I was there, and so were the two people who joined me now, Maggie Haberman, who has reported on Trump throughout the election, and Ross Douthat, an opinion columnist at The Times. Maggie Ross, thank you for being in the studio. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Michael. I want to start by asking you two how it felt to be in that room with now President-elect Trump. Initially, I thought uh, tense and a little uncomfortable. Uh, I think it took him a little while to settle in. He got off his chest his uh, agita with the New York Times, but dispensed with that fairly quickly. It's well out there that I've been treated extremely uh, unfairly, in a sense, in a true sense. I wouldn't only complain about the Times. I would say the Times was about the roughest of all. Uh, you could make the case the Washington Post was uh, was bad, but every once in a while I'd actually get a good article. <laughs> not not often, dude. But every once in a while. So. Uh, I would say there's just a fund- there was just a fundamental surrealism that may go away eventually. And it's not because it's not out of disrespect for the man. It's just because he has a pre-existing identity as a celebrity businessman who has always been one of the least presidential seeming figures in American politics. So being there in the kind of room where you, you know, expect to be having a sort of formal traditional now we meet the president and we'll all be awed by him situation and having Donald Trump, the man in full, walk in at him instead that's just surreal and just everything that I'd sort of heard and experienced of him in the past. I think the sort of strange love-hate relationship that he has with our fine newspaper. Um, I don't know. It, it all made me expecting him to come in and try to be gracious in a way that at least allegedly he wasn't with other media personalities in a recent meeting. Um, and that's basically the, the Donald Trump we got up to a point, a sort of conciliatory, good behavior president-elect who wanted to tell us what a great jewel the New York Times is. Thank you all very much. It's a great honor. And I will say the Times is, it's a great, great American jewel, world jewel. And uh, I hope we can all get along. I hope we can all, we're looking for the same thing. And I hope we can all get along well together. That was unexpected. I guess, but he's been reading us for his whole life. Yeah, I don't think it was very unexpected because the when he came into our editorial board meeting many, many months ago now as a candidate, he repeatedly went on and on about how it was a great honor. So, I mean, I, I do think that there is, to the extent that Trump is easily defined by uh, a lot of, uh, many of them conflicting impulses, many of them dating back to, I think, 
decades ago. He is still the boy from Queens who looks at the Times as sort of the, the, the crown jewel uh, and wants a level of respect. I don't think he would have been here if he didn't want that. And, and the meeting was at his request. Um, Trump was actually quite calm considering the various states I've seen him in. Um, this is not the first time I've been in a room with him, so I have a comparison point. I mean, he started out um, a little bit defensive, I thought. He had his arms folded as he was sitting down tightly. to see very tightly. Like the metaphor that came to mind was of a an unhappy kid yeah, who's just right. sort of waiting for something really bad to happen. Yeah, it, w- it was sort of getting ready to endure punishment, right? And so, but instead he he doled out the punishment. But he loosened up as time went on. He sort of got that off his chest. Uh, and then he uh, talked about essentially the greatest hits of the primary and of the general election and his rallies and how he had captured the mood. And he just felt it with Michigan. And he had added a final stop. And he had heard word that Hillary Clinton thought she was going to lose Michigan. So that's how they did it. It was really fascinating. Bill and Hillary, they went to Michigan late that sort of late afternoon. And I said, let's go to Michigan. It wasn't on the schedule. So I finished up in New Hampshire, and at 10 o'clock, I went to Michigan. We got there at 12 o'clock. We started speaking around 12.45, actually. And we had 31,000 people. And I said, really, I mean, there are things happening. But we saw it everywhere. So we felt very good. We had great numbers. We felt we were going to win. As time moved on, it was sort of all of the conflicting impulses of Donald Trump on display. It was um, responding to you know, sort of even mild shows of admiration or respect. Um, It was needing to thumb his nose at his opponents or people he had beaten. So he was very ingracious at points about um, Republican leaders essentially saying, well, they love me now. Right now they're in love with me. Okay. Four weeks ago they weren't in love with me. And to be fair to him, they certainly did not love him throughout most of this election. So he feels like he won. But also then, you know, sort of doing, as to your point about a child, almost putting his you know, thumb on his nose and saying na-na-na-na to two senators who lost, uh, Joe Heck and Kelly Ayotte uh, from New Hampshire. Uh, I won the presidency easily. Uh, I helped numerous senators. In fact, the only senators that, that didn't get elected were two, one up in New Hampshire who refused to say that she was going to vote for me, who, by the way, would love a job in the administration. And I said, no, 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 no. this is where I'm different than a politician. I know what to say. I just, you know, believe it's sort of interesting. She'd love to have a job in the administration. I said, no, thank you. She refused to vote for me. And a, a senator in Nevada who, frankly, uh, said uh, he endorsed me, and then he unendorsed me, and he went down like a, like a lead balloon. And, Lord, and then they called me before the race, and he wanted me to endorse him and do a big thing. And I said, no, thank you. Good luck. I, you know, let's see what happens. But then he also was sounding very, you know, sort of loving about his children. He's very proud and boastful about his business um, and utterly defiant about any suggestion that he should try to make a real separation between himself and his business, which was literally, um, I, I've never heard anything like that from a public official before. Ross, I want to know what you thought was the single most important thing that he said in this entire hour-long meeting. Well, I think, can I, can I say two? Because I'm going to agree with Maggie. Fine. I'm going to agree with Maggie <laughs> that, that his, his sort of obdurate defiance about questions, about conflicts of interest, his business dealings, and so on, was incredibly striking. According to the law, see, I think it's something where you put something in his massive trust and there's also nothing is written. In other words, in theory, I could be president of the United States and run my business 100% sign checks in my business. I could run my business perfectly and then run the country perfectly. And 
there was never a, there's never been a case like this where somebody's had like if you look at other people of wealth they didn't have this kind of asset and this kind of wealth frankly you know it's just a different thing but there is no i i assumed that you'd have to set up some type of trust or whatever and and you don't uh, and I was actually a little bit surprised to see it. So, in theory, I don't have to do anything. But I would like to do something. I would like to try and formalize something, because I don't care about my business. Uh, so I don't have to do anything, but I want to do something if I can. It was also striking in part because it contrasted with his willingness to be conciliatory, albeit in very vague ways, um, on a whole range of public policy issues from climate change and immigration, where he made a sort of passing reference to doing a deal that even, presumably even the liberal members of the New York Times editorial board would like. I feel very strongly about health care. I feel very strongly about uh, an immigration bill that I think even the people in this room can be happy. You know, you've been talking about immigration bills for 50 years mm -hmm. and nothing's ever happened. I feel something, I feel very strongly about an immigration bill that's fair and just and a lot of other things. To uh, waterboarding, um, which was, you know, this issue that came up over and over again on the campaign trail and was sort of a feature of his speeches where he was basically promising not just to bring back waterboarding but to uh, do sort of comprehensive torture-like treatment of, of detainees when you're dealing with terrorism. And here he was very quick to say that he'd had a conversation with uh, General Mattis, one of his leading candidates to be Secretary of Defense, who had said to him, as many military personnel will say, um, that they think you know there are better ways to do interrogation than waterboarding and torture, and this had made a big impression on Trump, and he was so he was open-minded on that too. So the combination of a sort of open-minded spirit of outreach on issue after issue with this repeated statement of, well, you know, there's no law about what conflict of interest rules say for the president, that to me was a striking combination. So was that open-mindedness or was that pandering to the people in the room who are New York Times columnists and editors and reporters? Like what, what was going on there? Uh, yes. No, I mean, I think that, uh, I think some of it was open-mindedness. I mean, I think some of it is a desire to uh, demonstrate that he knows that he has to listen to conflicting viewpoints or at least hear uh, other thoughts as he heads into the White House. Um, but, I, but I also, I do think that he is incredibly influenced by, A, the last person he spoke with in, in most cases, um, and we saw that throughout this meeting where he would talk about something that was very obvious that he had been influenced by. Let's, let's give some examples. So, for example, waterboarding. Um, you know, when my question was, you know, where are you on this, essentially, after Pence made clear that they're you know, leaving it open. They wouldn't rule it out. Trump had been adamant about bringing back waterboarding throughout the campaign. It wasn't just in the final days. It was going all the way back to South Carolina, where he had this very memorable quote where he said, torture works. Um, and he never said that again, but it was quite striking. Um, and he he talked about uh, General Mattis, who he said he's, you know, quote unquote, seriously considering for Department of Defense. It sounds like it's basically his but that he had raised this with Mattis in the meeting over the weekend that they had at Bedminster, Trump's golf course, and he had asked what he thinks about waterboarding. And the general said he essentially that he doesn't favor it, that he thinks that there's a lot of other techniques that works. But the and way he said it quite he said it quite colorfully, as I recall. General Mattis is a strong, highly uh, dignified man. I, I met with him at length and I asked him that question. I said, What do you think of waterboarding? He said, I was surprised. He said, I've never found it to be useful. 
he said, I've always found, give me a pack of cigarettes and a couple of beers, and I do better with that than I do with torture. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, no doubt, assuming that the president-elect would relay that story to the editorial board of the New York Times. Who among us does not assume that? But to your point, that's another impulse that was on display in this meeting, which is Trump is, um, I think I, I described him as uh, sort of like the 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 hair salon gossip um, during the, the campaign. I mean, there is this, you know, did you hear <laughs> quality to him? And he said something about, you know, there was one thing that Obama's very afraid of. You know, I'm not going right. to say He's what it is. He wanted us to you, ask You go ask Obama, Obama himself. But I mean, ourselves. this is really unheard And so just to, just to further explain that episode, um, when Trump said, there's one thing Barack Obama told me that he's 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 scared of and we should all be scared of, but I won't tell you. And then someone followed up and said, oh, no, please tell us. And he said, no, you'll have to ask. Right. But, and, but that whole conversation was another example of um, Maggie's point about the, the sort of last person phenomenon, right? Because clearly the current president of the United States is one of the last people that Trump has been talking to. And they've right. had several conversations. And, you know, again, in the impression that Trump gave to us, those conversations have had a significant impression yep. on Trump in a way that Again, you wouldn't expect if you were just sort of... Well, let me throw in another example, which is when Trump decided he was going to talk about why infrastructure was important to him and whether or not he thought the Republican Congress could swallow this trillion-dollar bill that he's interested in getting passed, he explained that the reason this was made uh, so real and visceral to him was that a very wealthy friend who owns a trucking company had called him and told him that the fleet of trucks he owns is going through a ton of wear and tear on the American highway system. Right. And that Except was he had a more, even more colorful version, which was, you know, this guy I know, he buys the, the best, best trucks, trucks, the Rolls Royce, Royce of trucks, trucks. Right, you know, most expensive trucks. And he calls me up about two months ago. He goes, man, I'm going to buy the cheapest trucks I can buy. I said, well, he goes, you know, the, and this is the biggest guy. He goes, my trucks are coming back. They go from New York to California. He said, they're all busted up. Mm -hmm. The highways are in such bad shape. They're hitting potholes. They're hitting everything. He said, I'm not buying these trucks anymore. I'm, I'm going to buy the cheapest stuff and the strongest tires I can get. It's the exact expression he used. The cheapest trucks and the strongest tires. He said. And Ross, the thing about that truck company is that that's his point of reference for infrastructure. And that makes me wonder if you think he showed any depth on any subject in that meeting at all. If, if, the truck truck, if the truck company CEO is how he decides that infrastructure needs to happen. In but in fairness to Trump, like that's true of a lot of presidential candidates. I mean, you could listen to Mitt Romney, as you did more than I at times on the campaign trail in 2012, and he would talk about people he knows in business who have said things to him about the state of the American economy. I think what you saw with Trump was real conviction on a set of issues associated very closely with him going back decades. He's always believed in this sort of mercantilist vision of American policy where we need better trade deals and better infrastructure building at home. He's been harping on that since the 1980s. And that's his core conviction on economic policy. He wants to build roads, cut corporate taxes, and pressure businesses. He talked about the idea of Apple having factories in the U.S., pressure businesses to stay or bring jobs back to America. And that, you know, whether he has sort of deep knowledge of how that would actually work is, is an open question. But that, I think, is a core conviction. I also thought we saw some close to sort of core conviction on Syria, where, you know, he whatever happens with Vladimir Putin, Trump wants to try and make some sort of alliance in, in Syria work. And he seemed to feel quite strongly about that. Uh, 
Syria, we have to solve that problem because we're just going to keep fighting, fighting forever. I have a different view on Syria than everybody else. Not everybody else, but uh, than a lot of people. Uh, I had to listen to uh, Lindsey Graham, who give me a break. I had to listen to Lindsey Graham talk about you know attacking Syria and attacking you know, and it's like you're now attacking Russia, you're attacking Iran, you're attacking, and what are we getting? What we're getting? What are we getting? And I have some very definitive, and I have some very strong ideas on Syria. I think what's happened is a horrible, horrible thing. It's a, to, to look at the deaths, and I'm not just talking deaths on our side, which are horrible, but the deaths, I mean, you look at these cities, Arthur, where yeah. they're totally, they're rubble, massive areas of, of, and they say two people were injured. No, thousands of people have died, okay? I think it's a shame. And can you describe I, that? I, I can only say this, uh, we have to end that craziness that's going on in Syria. And then other stuff is, you know, he's a negotiator and he wants everything else to be negotiable. And whether that will work with a fairly ideological Republican Congress, which is the question I sort of tried to ask him, I have no idea. But, you know, climate change, even immigration, he wants to signal flexibility because those are issues that I don't think he cares about the way he cares about, you know, strong arming <laughs> Apple into into building factories in America. Can I ask you when you about the experience of asking to President-elect Donald Trump a question, you had a chance in this meeting, and I watched you, because I was kind of marveling. I was trying to think how long you would go, how you'd frame the question. You'd already asked a question. I know, so but were. I still was really interested <laughs> in what you what you asked and, and how you were about to ask it. And it was essentially, can you get something as mammoth as an infrastructure project through this Republican Congress? Well, that and, actually... and what did he what did he say? Did he answer your question? And like, what's the overall feeling you got of, of the interaction? I mean, the feeling, well, the interaction started with, you know, we were all identifying ourselves, and he said something to the, I identified myself, and he sort of gave me a look and said something to the effect of, you know, I know who you are or something, which, again, sort of confirms just the sense you have that Trump takes the New York Times seriously and takes our criticism, bipartisan criticism, since I'm obviously a conservative columnist, that he takes it to heart, not necessarily in positive ways, (laughs) judging by his Twitter feed, but it does matter to him. Um, So there's that. In terms of the question, I mean, what I was trying to tease out, and he's obviously not going to get into this, is less the specific infrastructure bill question and more just this broad conflict of visions between Trumpism as an economic philosophy and Paul Ryan's economic philosophy, which in effect, I think, will play out in a kind of battle between Reince Priebus, who was was there sitting next to me, in fact, and Steve Bannon, who's sort of the mind of Trumpism in in the White House. Um, But I didn't obviously get an answer to that. My sense from the answer he did give is that he hasn't sort of thought ahead to what are you doing when Paul Ryan wants to reform Medicare, right? That he's sort of focused on this specific economic policy vision that he's held for a long time. He thinks he can get that through Congress or do some of it with his executive orders. I think he probably can. Um, And then the question is, Will there then be a broader ideological collision after that? I think he can do some kind of infrastructure bill that Republicans in Congress will buckle on that um, or come up with some sort of public-private hybrid that, that they decide satisfies them. Let's take a break right there, and we'll be right back. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation, 
be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. I want to spin through just a couple of the issues, the big ones that came up in this conversation with the president-elect. And I think we all have the sense that he kind of backed away from certain most extreme positions he'd taken. There was some softening. But I want us to... I want us to debate that and sort of ask ourselves if that's really what happened. And let's start with the alt-right, this community of voters and journalists who have flocked to Donald Trump, who have espoused some positions that a lot of the rest of the electorate uh, finds pretty alarming and that we've written a lot about here at The Times. Um, Maggie, did he really resolve his alliance or his relationship with the alt-right, with Breitbart News, with Steve Bannon? I mean, he resolved it in the ex- to the extent that he uh, sort of created his own fact set and uh, and went with it. So what he said was, and look, I, there is a a fairly complicated portrait of Steve Bannon that somebody can can paint. Um, <clears throat> there's uh, there have been complaints about him, but there's uh, you know from I think from some past employees and so forth. But uh, it, there's not a whole lot of hard uh, evidence or video or whatever of him making anti-Semitic statements. A lot of this comes from these divorce filings from uh, a long time ago. Um, Breitbart content, obviously, um, can be uh, a a different matter. And so Trump just basically equated Breitbart with the New York Times. Uh, They cover things. They're a a publication. Well, Breitbart's different. Breitbart covers things. I mean, like the New York Times covers things. I mean, I could say that author is alt-right because they covered an alt-right story. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the New York Times covers a lot of stories that are, you know, rough stories and stories. And, you know, they have covered some of these things, but the New York Times covers a lot of these things also. It's just a newspaper, you know, essentially. It's a newspaper. Um, but you're aware, sir, just with all due respect, that African-Americans and Jews and, and many folks who disagree with um, the coverage in Breitbart and the slant um, that Breitbart brings to the news view him that way, aren't you? Yeah. Well, Breitbart, first of all, is, is just a publication. And, you know, they cover stories like you cover stories. Now, uh, they are certainly a much more conservative paper, to put it mildly, than the New York Times. but. But Breitbart really is a news organization that's become quite successful. And uh, it's got readers, and it does cover uh, 
subjects that are on the right, but it covers subjects on the less left also. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big thing, uh, and he helped build it into a pretty successful news organization. So that there was that, and then he said, if I had um, any thought that Steve Bannon associated with the alt right at all, you know, and he specifically said that, you know, I wouldn't hire him. I mean, Bannon said earlier this year that Breitbart is a is a platform for the alt right movement. So. Uh, whether Trump knows that specific fact, I doubt. But Trump is very, very good at sort of emphatically stating something and making it a reality, even if there are facts that go against it. And what I found so extraordinary about that moment was that he, in, it was this strangely mild-tempered effort at reconciliation where he said, if there's something about Steve Bannon that you discover that's somehow at odds with anything I'm saying— I want you to call me. I want you to tell me. No, I'll tell you what, I know him very well. I, I will say this, and I will say this, if I thought that strongly, if I thought that he was doing anything or had any ideas that were different than the ideas that you would think, uh, I would uh, ask him very politely to leave. But in the meantime, uh, I think he's been treated very unfairly. It's very interesting because a lot of people are coming to his defense right now. Sorry, and by the way, if you see something or get something where you feel that I'm wrong and you have some info, I would love to hear it. Very good. You can call me. Arthur can call right. me. Right. I would love to hear it. That was what was so fascinating. I mean, given the severity of the topic and given the number of subjects that Breitbart has covered in the past and how they've covered it, it's, it was a bit of a strange gesture. He's saying, tell me, tell me if you notice something that I probably could have noticed myself if I went online and found it. And if you find it, send it to me, but and I might act. He doesn't go online. But, but it's and it's what a, and it's I what mean, he, yeah, it's what he does to sort of make you feel. And you and I have talked. You described it on a on a previous podcast. You described the experience of interviewing him as very seductive. Do you remember that, Michael? When you said that, you said it is very. I think I. I think I did. You, yeah, I you think said I did you say said that. it's a very seductive experience. Um, Trump is very good at making you feel as if he's reaching out to you and bringing you in. And so that's what I took that gesture to mean. To me, that gesture was. Um, you know what? I'm, I hear you. I'm with you, and I'm not. I'm not foreclosing it. And this is a good faith thing. I suspect that if somebody called him tomorrow with like five examples, I don't think it would actually change much. Let's talk about climate change for a minute. And this is a tricky subject because he was asked by Thomas Friedman his views on climate change, on rising waters around the globe, especially in coastal United States, and the damage it might do to the world and the way Tom Friedman tried to make it a little bit more approachable for Donald Trump was his golf courses and would they ever flood? And his answer was, I'm really open-minded. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in discussing this. Ross, what did you take away from it? Did, did he, he actually- doesn't, That he doesn't care a whit about climate change one way or another. <laughs> and that if you put him in a situation where it was to his political advantage to support the Paris Climate Accord and do 17 other things that Tom Friedman would like him to do, he would do it. But that if you put him in a situation, which he has with the Republican Congress and as the leader of the Republican Party, where it's to his political advantage not to do things, those things he probably won't. But either way, that that issue, like I think a lot of issues, again, outside of that core that he actually cares about, that issue is just not, he doesn't, he doesn't have strong convictions on it. He, it's negotiable to him, as so many other things are. And yeah, and he's willing to sort of do, you know, what Maggie talks about, that kind of, you know, I'm here to learn, I'm here to negotiate, let's make a deal thing to Tom, who does care a great deal about the issue. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And he, and he, and 
And Tom is somebody who he has admired in the past, and he has talked about admiring him in the past. So, it, you know, the way Trump is responding often matters as much as, like, who he's sitting across from as what he actually thinks or what he's saying. Which is very encouraging, I know, to lots of people who are wondering <laughs> what our president is going to be like. I want to talk about Donald Trump, the businessman who's now president-elect. We asked him in that room, I asked him on several occasions and tried to repeatedly press him on exactly how it was he was going to separate you know, the Trump organization and empire from the White House. And I'm not sure we ever got a completely satisfying answer. But Maggie, what? <laughs> we what, got an answer. An answer. I mean, well, it was... What would you say was the answer? I, I'll tell you what I think was the answer. The answer was the president can pretty much do what he wants. He, he but I might not. But I that. might not do exactly what I want. I might make concessions to this larger world of people who worry about the ethics. But I don't have to, and they won't really be anything that you can put your hands around. Was my sense. And the main reason you shouldn't worry is that I just won't care about it. That's right. That's what he was saying. That's right. That that he will care so much about America that he won't have time to worry about bookings in the Trump Hotel. Which, by the way, he noted, yeah, they'll probably go up because people will want to book there because he, you know, he he clearly. He clearly is thinking about these things. Yes. Well, there was a moment where I asked him whether he, as the Times had reported, but his spokesman denied, and then later just did not want to respond to, that he had met Nigel Farage with leaders of Brexit who had pushed for that in, in the UK, and he had asked them essentially if they agreed with him that wind farms near his golf course were a bad idea. Right. And he said, and his response was to you was, I say that to everybody. I hate wind farms. And he made a long case against wind turbines. The only thing that matters to me is running our country well. Okay, Mr. President. Yes. Can I press you a little further on what structures you would put in place to keep the presidency and the company separate, okay. and to avoid things, for example, that were reported in the Times in the past 24 hours about meeting with leaders of Brexit about wind farms. About meeting with who? Leaders of Brexit that might, about wind farms that might interfere with the views of your golf course. And how to, what structures, can you talk about that meeting, uh, by did the way? I, was I involved with the wind farms recently? Or uh, not that I know of. I mean, I have a problem with but wind. You brought, but you brought it up in the media, did you, didn't you? I might have brought it up, uh, not having to do with me. Just, I, I mean, the wind is a very deceiving thing. First of all, we don't make the windmills in the United States. They're made in Germany and Japan. They're made out of massive amounts of steel, which goes... So here we have the president-elect of the United States saying, yeah, yeah, so what? I, I, right. I, I probably did say this to some but leaders casual. of a foreign country that I want them to do something in their national policy that would benefit my business. But his defense of it is that it's casual. And yeah. it was the same way with the photographs that were taken with a yes. group of Indian businessmen. He didn't deny having done it. Obviously, he can't. There are those photos there. And these were what business partners in a project of his in Italy, in, in, in India. India. Right. And what he said was, this kind of thing isn't a big deal. And that, so that's sort of his, that, that will be his running defense. It's, so, well, I say, I, I talk down wind turbines to everyone. I take photographs with everyone. What's the big deal? I want to talk about the Clintons and what Donald Trump did today, which, which felt like the most extraordinary, to me, single piece of news. And in, and in large part, I think it was because of the terms in which he described it, yep. why it was he felt he should not pursue further investigations or prosecutions of Hillary Clinton. And, and Maggie, how would you describe what he said and how he said it? Um, not entirely committal and, and understanding much more so than what we heard on Morning Joe um, earlier, which is where this all came up first, uh, about the limits of a 
president's power. Like he he had one thing where he said something to the effect of, to the extent I'm able to, or to the extent that you know, recognizing the, there was something about recognizing that he's not all powerful in this. And in fact, it's more than that. He's not actually supposed to have anything to do with this. But he talked about it in human terms. It was they have suffered so much. They've been through so much, without any sort of reality assessment of the fact that what was brutalizing and that was brutal brutalizing was I think his word I think he just said this was a brutal um period um you know he he was very very rough on Clinton not just about the emails not just about the Clinton Foundation but about her husband's personal indiscretions and, and he brought he brought the women there the women held the press conference. to the debates and to a press conference before it in order to embarrass the Clintons in it with as much yep. like mortification as humanly possible yep call them liars yep. called Bill Clinton a predator oh yeah no he I mean he he, he so, how, so how is it worse how is it we're supposed to make sense Ross of that he now believes that they've suffered too much for the law to apply to them if that's what he said well I mean part of it is notwithstanding as Maggie says his modest concession that he might not be the decider here part of it is just the personalization of politics right it's a court and so now he's the king and he can afford to be magnanimous towards his defeated foes. I mean, the other thing that's raised by this, though, is that, you know, this, on the one hand, Trump was indeed often vicious in his attacks on the Clintons. At the same time, if you watch the campaign, and maybe Maggie has a different impression, but my sense was always that his heart wasn't in it the way it was in attacking Republicans, that he, at some level, and this was true, he was a friend of the Clintons, a casual friend, but he played golf with Bill Clinton. That it was a performance. Right, that it was a performance, whereas the way he feels about his Republican enemies is real and visceral. I agree that he certainly um, had more animosity toward the Republicans who had opposed him. The I was thinking about this as you were talking. The most unhinged and unchained I have ever seen Donald Trump was the weekend of the Access Hollywood tape with Billy Bush and that that unpleasant recording where him come he came down from um, his you know high above in his tower and he immersed himself in the hundred or so supporters who were down on the sidewalk in a scene that like you don't normally see in US politics it was like they were pawing at his garment and he was just surrounding himself with them he raised his uh, right fist in a in a power salute and then he went back upstairs and I was very struck that this is a person who, like, depending on how he is feeling, is willing to do almost anything. And so the next day was when he brought these women, Bill Clinton's either, you know, the women who have accused him of abuse or women he had an affair with or whatever. Um, he brought them to the debate. I don't think that would have happened in any other moment. Uh, and so to the extent that he was, I agree with you, I think that he felt more warmly about the Clintons. He genuinely believed that he had done this, like, favor to Bill Clinton, which was let him into his golf club after he left office because people didn't really want to hang out with right. Bill Clinton post-impeachment and post-Monica Lewinsky. And in Trump's mind, if he does something for you, then you're like in his permanent return. And so nothing can ever change after that. Um, I, I think that Trump felt sort of personally offended by a lot of what got said during the campaign, which really a lot of it was just sort of natural campaigning. But he was able to turn it up to like an 80. And I don't think I don't think he understands the impact of not just sort of him saying lock her up and let's have a prosecution, but him like reading aloud from the WikiLeaks documents. Those were as impactful on this race as anything else. I want to touch on the Middle East because there was a moment in this conversation we all had with Donald Trump, I guess just three hours ago, where you suddenly had an image of Arafat and Rabin and Jared Kushner. And the idea being <laughs> that, that there might there might be a Donald Trump vision of himself 
as a transformational figure able to make peace in the Middle East. I have to tell you, I did not expect to hear him say that. I think of him as somebody who wants to retrench when it comes to America abroad. I had no idea he harbored the desire to be seen as a time man of the year peacemaker. That's not a new thing, though. He brought that up on the Republican debate stage, not in South Carolina, but at, at some point. And this was, again, one of the many places during the campaign when Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, I think it was more Rubio, launched a kind of futile attack on him saying... You know, this shows he's not, you know, he's not a true conservative because he doesn't understand just how bad the Palestinian leadership is and so right. on. And Trump sort of retreated to vague platitudes about, I think I can get it done. So I'd, I'd heard that before. It surprised me a little bit that he brought it up in the context of, you know, what do you want your son-in-law to do? But, you know, Jared Kushner wrote his APAC speech, his attempt at outreach to the, to the Jewish and Israeli community, which was itself a form of damage control, maybe not over the I forget exactly what it was damage control over, um, whether it was links to anti-Semites or okay. seeming to be too pro-Palestinian or something. But so there, there's clearly is, you know, he sees Jared as his conduit to um, to Jews in Israel for obvious reasons. Um, but, yeah, the idea of Trump as deal maker in Israel is it sort of went into hibernation during the general election, but it's not actually a new thing. No, it's not. It, no, the new thing was Jared's potential role there. This is the son-in-law. The son-in-law, yeah. sorry. Jared Kushner, who we profiled over the weekend, who is literally the most important person in this government right now. But there's uh, this would be a way, I think, for him to solve, and I was trying to find this quote here on my computer because I was really struck by it, what, he's, what Trump said, but this would be a way to solve the anti-nepotism issue, which is the, the, you know, if Kushner does go into the government, there's going to be a lot of opposition because under anti-nepotism rules, which would apply to a son or a daughter-in-law, I, I don't see how that would work. But this is what he's, this is what he said when I asked him about what role he hopes Kushner will play. He said, uh, maybe nothing, okay. because I don't want to have people saying conflict. Even though the president of the United States is, I hope whoever is writing this story. It's written fairly. The president of the United States is allowed to have whatever conflicts he wants, he or she wants. But I don't want to. I don't want to go by that. Uh, Jared's a very smart guy. He's a very good guy. The people that know him, he's a quality person, and I think he could be very helpful. I would love to be able to be the one that made peace with Israel and the Palestinians. I would love that. That would be such a great achievement because nobody's been able to do it and successfully. He'd be, and he'd be part of that? I would. Well, I think he'd be very good at it. Okay. I mean, he knows it so well. He knows the region, knows the people, knows the players. I would love to be. And you could put that down in a list of many things that I'd like to be able to do. Now, a lot of people Inevitably, Ross reminds me, and I wonder if it reminds you, of a famous line from Richard Nixon. <laughs> Indeed. Do you remember that quote? Which one? When the president does it, that means it's not illegal? It's. I mean, there's just there's extraordinary. Which in certain areas is technically resonance. correct, right? I just mean, this, depends. It, it depends, but the reality is that Trump is right that there are, there are not the same conflict of interest rules that are in place for other officials, and historically the presidency has been constrained in part by, well, one by the fact that you haven't had a businessman like Donald Trump as president, yes. but also by custom and reticence and sort of people's desire not to present the appearance of a conflict of interest. Um, and in this case, Trump doesn't seem to have the, those kind of worries, or at least not to the same extent. I mean, he sp- has specifically, am I right that he specifically ruled out a blind trust, basically? I mean, well, what he said during the campaign was, and I was struck by this today, during the campaign, he kept saying, I'm going to have a blind trust. 
you know, and my children will run the business. These two things are mutually yeah, exclusive. In so, right. So today he just cut out the blind trust right. talk. Now it's just it's, Ivanka will run just, the business. Yeah, mostly he said mostly Ivanka. He said he's phasing himself out. It'll be Eric Don Jr., but mostly Ivanka. But then. He says, but of course, I can't not see Ivanka, right? He basically right. made it sound like in order to have any kind of wall of separation, he'd never get to see his daughter, which is presumably why he has his daughter in the meeting right. with um, the Japanese prime right. minister. And, and so for on. those who wondered whether Donald Trump was, in fact, stepping back from his business, he made really clear to us all that he very much still sees himself as running the company, is still signing checks, and he explained to us why he felt he needed to sign the checks. You know, I sign checks. I'm the old-fashioned type. I sign, like to sign checks so I know what's going on, as opposed to pressing a computer button, boom, and thousands of checks are automatically signed. It, keep, it tells me what's going on a little bit, and it tells contractors that I'm watching. But um, I am phasing that out now and handing that to Eric Trump and Don Trump and Ivanka Trump, for the most part, and some of my executives. Uh, so that's that's happening right now. I think if we're being honest, there were moments of humor in this long conversation with Donald Trump. And I could volunteer one first. Bring it. <laughs> um, when he was asked about the future of libel law and whether he would weaken it, Donald Trump kind of swiveled around in his chair and self-deprecatingly joked that the problem with changing libel laws to make it easier to sue people like us at the New York Times was that his lawyers informed him it might make it easier for people to sue president-elects like him. For and, us, for us, I think, to sue. And for for us or for maybe even the... Not that he would ever consider libeling the New York Times on a medium like Twitter or anything like And I like believe that. that the audio record will show that the room may or may not have erupted into laughter at that. After all the talk about libel and libel laws... Are you committed to the First Amendment of the Constitution? No, I was hoping he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be happy. It, it took a non... A non well, he's I think you'll be happy. Actually, somebody said to me on that, they said, you know, it's a great idea softening up those laws, but you may get sued a lot more. And I said, you know, you're right. I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> that was what was disarming about this meeting, was that he kept finding ways, well, to disarm us. Well, Trump is, you know... And I wonder Trump what you thought been we had... a. Trump has been a public personality, a particular type of public personality for decades. He's a celebrity, a reality television star. He's been interviewed in 17,000 different contexts. I don't think it would be surprising in the slightest that he would be at times a disarming presence. I, again, I, I would say I expected, I expected to laugh. He's, Just as I laughed at times watching the Republican presidential debates, he can be funny. He can be. He can also be charming. I mean, and I'm sure I'm going to invite enormous terrible. Oh, were there examples of that? Terrible today? mentions for this. Um, he just, as he was, less charming than just sort of funny and entertaining at certain moments. But he can be sort of when he when he was walking around the table when he first got there, and he was doing the bit that he does about oh she's a killer about Maureen Dowd or you know this one's been so tough on me. Used to be nice to me. Used to be nice to me. Um, it usually gets a laugh, you know, it, it, in some cases a nervous laugh, but it, it gets a laugh. I was I kept thinking during this interview uh, the, or this meeting that we had with him of something he said to me a year and a half ago when he first got into the race. And there was a report that Reince Priebus, now his chief of staff, uh, expected for the White House. At the time, the RNC chairman had called him and asked him to m modulate his tone on, on Hispanics and on uh, Mexicans. And it did not sound right to me that that would have happened for the way that the report went. So I called Trump and he got on the phone and he said, that's absolutely not what happened. And he said, he knows better than to lecture me. And then he paused and said, this is not a five-star general we're dealing with here. <laughs> and never mind, there's no, no five-star generals. It was still, it was very funny. And I laughed. And 
you know, it was sort of I kept thinking about it, watching Ryan sitting like literally diagonally across the table from Trump today. Just what a, a weird trip this has been. But but Trump can be charming. And I think that that is something if there's anything that the Clinton people missed, it was that. And as we've said on this podcast before, Hillary Clinton is many things, but she's not that funny. Well, she can be just not with reporters and other people. I want to conclude by asking you guys, was this conversation in any way flawed? It was a complicated round table, round uh, boardroom table. It was a tricky environment in which to do aggressive follow-up. So I want to know if it was a satisfying interview experience with our president-elect. I mean, no, to the extent that I would have liked more time. And I, I there are questions that I would have. There, it was, it was, it was. It was interesting, and it was certainly, um, you know, fulfilling in terms of trying to understand more about what he will be like as our president. I say no only because there are still a couple of questions in my mind that I, I would like to get to with him at some point. Among them, you know, immigration. Among them, more about where he sees America's role in the world, which he touched on broadly. But I'd like to, among them, uh, you know, what he sees the U.S. role in NATO going forward, which has been an issue of this campaign. But generally speaking, I do feel like I learned a lot more about how he sees himself stepping into this. I found his comments about his business and how, you know, the president definitionally can't have a conflict of interest kind of astonishing. So for me, that was very revealing. Yeah, I, I thought it was revealing without being perfectly satisfying. I, I think that there were several points, especially stuff related to the nature of Breitbart and Bannon and so on, where, you know, a sort of more hostile follow-up question might have elicited a interesting, if more hostile, response. Um, so, you know, there were areas where the sort of natural collegiality of lunchtime probably diminished the sharpness of the questioning. But then again, most of the questions were pretty sharp. And yeah, I agree with Maggie. I think the combination, the combination of places where he was sort of dug in, mostly on issues related to what you might call his court, his sort of his family, his business, and his orbit, versus his sort of willingness to be a kind of Rockefeller Republican who kills terrorists on other issues, tells us something about how the presidency would go if he were the only one in charge of it. Did it create greater confidence in the Trump presidency in that room? I mean, I can't really speak for other people, and I'm not really sure that's a place where I would wade in, but I, I, I certainly... I was meaning to be provocative. I certainly... <laughs> uh, I came away thinking that he is trying to get his arms around this. Whether that's a very low bar, I will let other people decide, but I think that he is trying. I think if you came in expecting Donald Trump as a figure out of nightmare, uh, you know, a sort of proto-Hitler building concentration camps or something, then it would be a experience that should, you know, give you some relief. Um, I don't think that's the right way to look at Trump to begin with, um, so I was not completely relieved, but it did leave me worrying more about corruption than gross incompetence, and I would prefer corruption to gross incompetence. <laughs> well, on that positive well, as, note... I was going to say, as long as you've got a great trade-off there. Right? <laughs> Ross, Maggie, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. That's it for the run-up. I'll see you back here on Thanksgiving for our third and final dialogue between Clinton and Trump voters. We'll talk to Craig, a gay son and Clinton supporter in California, who came out to his parents a year ago, and to his father, a religious Trump supporter in Kentucky. I'll see you then.
snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.